Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about the Playboy Club as opposed to Playboy the magazine, which uh, I'm sure at some point in Stuff Mom Never Told You, History of the Future, we'll talk about. Um, and we were initially inspired to talk about the Playboy Club because of this show that got a lot of buzz on NBC um, called, called, <laughs> called the, the Playboy Club. Yeah, it's called the Playboy Club. And as uh, as fate would have it, as we were in this podcast studio recording this episode you're about to hear on the Playboy Club, NBC was busy announcing <laughs> that uh, that they were canceling the show. Right. So just bear that in mind as we make a couple of references to the show. It's it's very it's not so much about the show though as about the actual history of the Playboy Club. Right. Yeah, we're just going to talk about the history of the club and how it came about and where where it is now mm-hmm. and how maybe it really is not nearly as glamorous as they portray it on television. Right. Um because Gloria Steinem, in fact, mm-hmm. called for a boycott of this NBC show before it premiered, um, saying that it is glamorizing this life that is the life of the bunny mm-hmm. who worked at the the Playboy Club. Because there is a difference, right, between um, bunnies and playmates. Right. Yeah. If you if you landed the cover, you were a playmate. If mm-hmm. you were in the magazine, so basically, if you were someone's bunny waitress, mm-hmm. uh, you would introduce yourself as I'm. Bunny, whatever. I'm Bunny Caroline. Uh huh. You're Bunny Kristen. Oh. But if one of us got the cover, we would say, "Hello, I'm your playmate, Caroline." Oh, so that was kind of an an elevation. Yeah, it was a step status. up. Well, Gloria Steinem went undercover for a couple of weeks just as a bunny in training, and so um, when she heard about this NBC show, she was up in arms and said, "This is this is terrible. Why are we glorifying the Playboy Club?" Right. Yeah, she said that it was actually really tacky, mm-hmm. um, you know, with creepy men grabbing your bunny tail and whatnot, yeah. and that waitresses were actually, or bunnies, I'm sorry, let's let's not forget to dehumanize these people, right. um, that bunnies were actually underpaid and had to deal with really terrible working conditions. But not all bunnies, former bunnies, uh, would agree with Steinem, as we will learn. Right. But first, let's start with Hef. Back in time. Yeah, Hef, Hef got his start at Esquire, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he ended up, to raise money to start Playboy, he ended up hawking his furniture. Yes. And he got an initial investment of about ten grand, and started Playboy, which launched in 1953. And this is all going on in Chicago. And by 1958, Playboy's circulation had reached almost a million. And he was already making $4.2 million in revenue. Of this magazine in just five years. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, I guess people were picking up what he was putting down. That, that was Those were the days when people could could actually start magazines yeah. and make money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he did it. He says that he perceived the need for a healthier attitude about sex. Mm-hmm. So he put um, naked women in magazines. Yeah, I thought this was an, uh, an interesting quote from Paul Gerbert, who was the executive director of the Kinsey Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that Hefner's genius is that he has linked sex with up, upward mobility. Right. Which we'll definitely see with the evolution of the Playboy Club, right. which started 
um, all because of an article that they ran in Playboy in 1959 about this place called the Gaslight Club. Right, yeah. Buxom waitresses wore corsets. They walked around pretty much half naked. Mm-hmm. And thousands of people wrote in regarding this article in Playboy, wanting to know how they could join, how yeah. they could be members, how do I get in? And actually, it spawned a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> great, <laughs> great. Great in quotes. Great idea. <laughs> From Playboy's promotions manager, Victor Lowndes, and his girlfriend, Ilsa Torrance, who prodded Hef to start a club like it. Mm -hmm. He wasn't super keen on the idea, but, you know, they talked him into it, and Ilsa came in wearing a satin one-piece and some bunny ears, and that that helped convince him. Yeah, the bunny costume was not Hefner's idea. It was all thanks to the girlfriend. And then um, there's this anecdote about the first time she comes in wearing this of homemade satin getup, and he Hefner hikes up the um, the leg line, mm-hmm. basically making it extremely high cut to emphasize and exaggerate the length of the women's legs. Right. Let's make them a little more naked. And of course, um, they, they all had very large bust lines, regardless of whether or not the bunnies actually could fill them out. Right. Because they could use you know all sorts of things to. Uh, to fill out those those bunny costumes. Right. Gloria Steinem in her essay about her in infiltration experience mm-hmm. actually has a list of things that bunnies would stuff their tops with. She herself got her top stuffed. And I say got her top stuffed <laughs> because someone else did it for her um, with a dry cleaner bag. Uh-huh. But other people used cotton and Kleenex and whatever else. And you would have to do a bunny dip when you were serving a client. Otherwise, it was a specialized way to... You um, and in the Bend studio trying backwards. to bunny dip, and it's not really working. Basically, like gracefully squatting down so that your <laughs> your breast stuffage doesn't end up on the table. Right, a graceful squat. Yes, it sounds <laughs> terrible. Um, but the first club, which uh, it opened in Chicago, and it was a membership club, mm-hmm. and so uh, it sort of made it more exclusive. Yeah, you you got a key to indicate that you were a member. And it was a $50 fee for residents and $25 for out-of-towners. Yeah, and uh, the first club opened in 1960. And by 1961, Time Magazine calls the Playboy membership key the closest thing to Phi Beta Kappa from Yale. And they oh. sold more than 50000 in the first year. I don't know if I would say that, but I mean, well, maybe. Is it really that? I, I don't know. Well, this is 1960. You know, this is a big deal. I mean, the ga- think about the reaction to the Gaslight Club. True. And the Playboy Club has even more cachet. Um, would you like me to describe the decor? Please. Um, Hugh Hefner apparently loves the color orange. Mm-hmm. And so there was a ton of orange. It was very masculine. There was lots of teak Chrome, avocado, um, described as a sort of Danish modern look that was very big at the time, which makes me think of it as uh, just a, a really sleazy Ikea. <laughs> um, and and speaking of, you know, actually, maybe it kind of is like a sleazy Ikea because everything on the menu, all the food, the steaks and <laughs> drinks, everything totaled up to $1.50. Right. You know, you can go to Ikea, get yourself some cheap meatballs. <laughs> well, you've got to have strength to walk through that place. Yeah. And, and I can't, you know what? I don't care what you say. It is kind of sleazy because think about how many people have touched that stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's it's just germy. That's not sleazy. I, it's it, one in the same. 
in my head. So back to the, <laughs> back to the Playboy Club. Yeah, back to the Playboy Club. Yeah, so Hef, um, he was going for a bachelor pad aesthetic. He mm-hmm. said that the clubs were a combination, um, club, apartment, sort of to give men a home away from home, you know, if you, if your home had half naked women walking around in it. But that's not to say that the men did not bring their wives along. Oh. On the weekends, uh, there was one former bunny talking about how it was very important um, if you had one one uh, client that you would serve all the time, like men who were higher paying members mm-hmm. like to have their own bunny who would serve them whenever they came into the club. But then on the weekend, they would bring their wives in. And um, so as to allay any of their fears, uh, the wives fears that there might be something um, untoward going on at the mm. Playboy Club, that bunny would always make nice with the wives and bring them swizzle sticks to take home to the kids. Just little presents, little toys Where from the Playboy Where do you Club. keep swizzle sticks in the costume? I guess in the dry cleaner the bag. Dry, exactly. <laughs> it's actually a dry cleaner bag full of swizzle sticks. Right. Well, no, they uh, they wanted to make sure that the wives weren't threatened because they wanted the husbands to be able to keep coming yeah. and be like, look, I'm not your competition. I'm just you know, a glorified waitress. So mm-hmm. don't worry about it. Um, and in 1963, that's when Gloria Steinem auditions to become a bunny because you really you didn't need much uh much experience to be a bunny you just had to be between the ages of 18 and 23 and you just needed to be beautiful charming and refined so caroline you and i'd be shoe-ins if we weren't weren't so daggum old if if there is anything anyone says about me it is that i am refined (laughs) so steinem made the cut and she wrote about her experience in an essay called A Bunny's Tale, which was published in Show Magazine. And for anyone who hasn't read Steinem's essay, you can think of it as if you were to take Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and set it in the Playboy Club, there you have it. It was a horror story. Interesting. Yeah. Making sausage. She's saying, because they claim that you could make... $1,000 a week. Steinem says no, because there was this week-long training period. All the bunnies had to go to... Uh, you didn't get paid. They wouldn't get paid for it. You pretty much had to work every day, all day, to make 200 or 300 bucks a week. Those costumes were not comfortable. Steinem says that she lost something like 10 pounds in two weeks yeah. just from sweating. Yeah, sweating. Well, that and not being able to eat on your shift. There right. were all these rules in the bunny manual that you had to follow that, that dictated how you smoked, mm-hmm. drank, Ate, interacted with customers, etc., and uh, you know how you delivered drinks, which was the bunny dip the that bunny we already dip. talked. You know, bending over backwards and doing the graceful squat to deliver, a, <laughs> right? Deliver a cocktail. You couldn't if you were dancing on the floor with clients. You could not. There could be no physical contact, uh, which is why non-touch dances such as the twist and the Watusi were ah, big, <laughs> big bunny favorites. Um, so. But the biggest revelation that Gloria Steinem had from working at the Playboy Club was the whole objectification angle. She came away from it saying, um, you know, that we, as in women, are all bunnies, all being judged based on their, um, our physical appearance, being objectified by men. Um, yeah, underpaid, mm-hmm. having to look all sexy all the time like we do. But at the same time, though, some other bunnies at the time didn't agree with Steinem. Um, for instance, uh, Trish Murphy, who is a former bunny, she was talking recently to Vanity Fair, and she says, the feminists used to say to us, you're selling out, you're being exploited. 
but we never felt that. We felt that we were the first women we knew who bought their own apartment as single women. And to me, it was emancipation and it was empowering. Right. And they actually uh, touch on that in the show in the first episode of the Playboy Club. There is, I think there's one or two bunnies who actually say something along those lines of I'm making more than my husband or I'm making more than my father. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that's great if if this gives um, women a, a, an ability to be independent that they wouldn't otherwise have. However, it's I think it's unfortunate that they had to go this route. But, you know, it's it's wonderful that they found independence somehow. Yeah, I mean, and you have to think about it, like putting it in the context of it being the early 60s, mm-hmm. um, the sad fact was there really weren't that many um, that, that many employment outlets available to women. Um, and for for instance, I thought this was kind of funny. This was this is an excerpt from the 1968 Bunny Manual, which was the rule book that all of the the new bunnies would would get. And it says our bunnies represent varied backgrounds. Among them are ex school teachers. Secretaries, actresses, dancers, models, and co-eds. Wow. All male fantasies. All male. And all, I mean, like, that's, that's it. That's your, that's your employment umbrella. Yeah. At, at, at the time. Well, um, Catherine Lee Scott, a former bunny and author of The Bunny Years, um, she wanted to quiet the haters. And she basically said that there was a joy and there was an innocence to it. That these were college girls and girls trying to launch their careers and work their way through school. It could be your daughter. It could be your sister. And she says that's what she thought that people found threatening about it. Mm-hmm. Was that here were these girls, not necessarily like drop dead model actress gorgeous, but these were girls who were really trying to get ahead and make some money. Mm-hmm. And that they, it wasn't necessarily sleazy and, you know, gross. They weren't hookers. They, they were enjoying what they did. Right. Um, but I mean, we do have to acknowledge, you know, a point that Steinem brought up when, especially when she was calling for the boycott of, you know, the way that the men would treat the bunnies just being constantly objectified and sexualized. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the bunny manual explicitly prohibits any kind of mingling, fraternizing, socializing, or physical contact with clientele. Right. But the untold story behind all that is while, you know, when they're on the clock, the women were certainly not allowed to even give their last names to patrons at the club. But after hours, they were kind of expected to go to these parties and hobnob with these these men like Hef and Victor Lowndes and other cronies of theirs and probably were expected to... um you know, to engage in other extracurricular activities. Yes. Yes. Well, actually, Victor Lowndes wife is a former bunny and she called the experience liberating. Mm-hmm. So I guess everybody has a different opinion. Gloria Steinem would definitely disagree. And I'm sure there are others. But um, I mean, one bunny said that she could make a thousand dollars a week and that she didn't even she and some other bunnies didn't even cash all their paychecks all the time because mm-hmm. they were rolling in dough. And that's probably why almost every time, at least during the heyday of the Playboy clubs really in the, in the sixties and maybe in the early seventies when the new clubs are opening up, there would be hundreds of women mm-hmm. who would audition for, and you actually had to audition, um, for these, these bunny jobs. Although in, uh, Steinem's description, it sounded like she kind of just walked in. Uh, I read her essay and it sounded like she just came in and filled out the application and got, got a look of approval from <laughs> someone and they were like, just show up here. Be a bunny. Be a bunny. <laughs> um, but maybe we should um, mention a few notable ex-bunnies, including Steinem, uh, because there is a theme of obviously using the Playboy Club as a means to an end. No one really was like, I mean, I can't wait 
to develop to a life, <laughs> lifelong career as a bunny. Well, and also you couldn't develop a lifelong career because yeah. you would age out. I mean, they, if they were looking for girls between the ages of 18 and 23, um, it was kind of understood sort of like it was for flight attendants right. at the time that if you're, you know, I mean, we'd probably be crusty old crabs. <laughs> at the bunny club? Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, I just wouldn't put up with that. I can't I'd need a walker. I can't, I can't walk around in high heels that long. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, you mentioned a means to an end. And that's what Carol Cleveland called it. She, oh my God, I love her. She, for all you Monty Python fans out there, was in almost 30 episodes of The Flying Circus. And if if you're still not clear on which one she is, she's, you know, the woman on Monty Python. Blonde, adorable. Um, she played Zoot in the Holy Grail. She's fabulous. And she, she did. She called bunnyism, uh, a means to an end. And it did. It got her acting career going. Um, and then we also have Debbie Harry, aka mm-hmm. oh, Blondie, yeah. who worked at the, uh, the Playboy Club for a while before she started rocking out. <laughs> um, and then there's Lauren Hutton. Yeah. Who worked there for three months, said it was a good experience. Um, we have Patricia Quinn as well, who is Magenta. From the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, the famous disembodied lips mm-hmm. on the Rocky Horror uh, in, the, in the beginning credits, yeah. Um, but the the Playboy Club really lost its luster in the 80s. I mean, it started it started to get pretty cheesy. And really, by that point, um, the idea of women walking around these bunny costumes was, I mean, just kind of kitschy to begin with, but not very scandalous. No, yeah. How cheesy was it? It was so cheesy that they actually started bringing in male rabbits who did yeah. not who did not wear tails or ears. No, they, they had different kind of uniforms. This is when they tried to um, Playboy tried to rebrand its clubs because in 1984 uh, the clubs lost something like three million dollars. They were failing so hard, and they were trying to attract a broader female clientele. So they bring in these uh, these male servers to accompany the female servers. And they wore an array of costumes, including sleeveless tuxedo shirts, um, some kind of wrestling <laughs> unitard. Hot. And then my favorite, which was described as a sort of yachting cap that at the time was most closely associated with Daryl Dragon of Captain and Neil. Oh, my God. Is there a, so wait, were these, all, were these all worn at the same time? Because I'm hoping not, because when I think of a sleeveless tux, tuxedo shirt, I think of... Uh, Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze in SNL. So maybe just some, you know, it could be over. It could be the the unitard over the sleeveless shirt with with a jaunty (laughs) Captain and Tennille. a jaunty angle. Um, Needless to say, the Empire Club in New York City did not do so well. Right, yeah. Heff and Lowndes actually agreed that they'd become too successful. Mm-hmm. They they sort of watered it down. They they lowered the prices so, you know, Joe Schmo could walk on in and be sitting next to some fancy pants guy. And, uh, yeah, they just tried to be all things to all people. They changed up the menu. There was something about frozen Snickers bars that makes me <laughs> think of George Costanza. Um, but, yeah, the, the last American club closed in 1988, and that was in Lansing, Michigan, which actually surprised me. that it, Lansing? That says a lot about sort of how, how much the Playboy Club spiraled into right. this uh, just kind of cheesy, you know, sexy Applebee's ripoff. <laughs> Uh, because they started to, you know, like you said, they, they oversaturated yeah. their own market. <laughs> so they're left with places like Lansing. Hey, no offense. No offense to Sorry, Lansing. Sorry, don't mess with the mitten. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> and then the last international club closed in 1991. 
But then in 2006, they reopened. And yeah, in Las Vegas. In so, Vegas. Yeah, everything comes back around. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that the avocado green doesn't come back around. No, I hope it stays. <laughs> keep it cheesy. Keep, keep it cheesy. Yeah. Or, or, you know, Phyllis Diller talked about how Hef was the only person she knew who would actually hang rugs on the wall. Yeah. They were orange furry shag ugh, rugs. I mean, I think if there is one, if there is one positive thing that we can say about, uh, the history of the Playboy clubs, especially in, in the sixties, um, aside from, some of the bunnies who reported making a, a ton of money, making more than their fathers, making more than men at the time. That's, that's great for them. And we gotta, you know, we gotta give it to Hef. Um, he was very pro civil rights and mm-hmm. he incorporated black writers into his magazine, black performers on his TV shows and doing stand up and music at the clubs. Mm-hmm. And also, um, there were black bunnies as well, although they were. Referred to as chocolate bunnies, which is very derogatory. And they actually referenced that, I noticed, too, Mm -hmm. in that first episode. Yeah, it it almost seems I was watching the first episode and I doubt I will watch any more of the Playboy Club. And it seems like they actually lifted a lot from Gloria Steinem's essay because Mm -hmm. she mentions this redhead with a baby voice in her essay. And there is a redhead with a baby voice in the show. But obviously, the redhead has a very intricate storyline. But, right. you know, I'll never know what happens. And lots of secrets. So many secrets. Where do they keep them in those tiny costumes? <laughs> um, no, actually, go, yeah, speaking of the show, one NBC exec calls it a fun soap opera. And the show's executive producer says it's about empowering these women to be whatever they want to be. And, you know, I've, I've heard Hugh Hefner say similar things about, about bunnies and about playmates. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely on board nope. with that assessment. Nope. I mean, do I think that, I think that it's a little overblown, to be honest, to call for boycotting the Playboy Club simply because, you know, if, if we're going to put our effort behind, um, you know, boycotting things on television that portray women poorly. I think that there is just a menu of reality <laughs> television shows yeah. that should get the axe first. But I also see where Steinem is coming from in terms of not wanting to sort of glorify and fetishize this very misogynistic chapter. Right. Yeah. In history. Yeah. You're, you're, they're glamorizing these clubs that made women walk around in bathing suits, basically. Mm-hmm. But they're also sort of glamorizing a time in history that why, why are we going back and, and being like, Oh my God, this was so amazing. At least Mad Men, I feel like is a little more, it shows sort of the underbelly maybe. Right. Whereas maybe the Playboy club is like, Oh yeah, everything was great in the sixties. Yeah. It was so, it was just covered in, in satin and glitter and, and everything cost a dollar fifty. Yeah. Well, there was, when I, when I mentioned on Facebook that we were going to talk about the Playboy Club history, there was a lot of response. People seemed pretty excited about this. So please send in your thoughts. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address, or you can head over to Facebook or write something on our wall. And we got a couple of listener emails here to read in the meantime. Alrighty, this is from a gentleman who would like to remain anonymous. He says, I'm a diagnosed narcissist and a dark triad personality. I've been involved in the seduction community officially, teaching pickup for about a year, and as a student and one who researched many of the methods for much longer. 
I never had a problem picking up women before I encountered the community, but have used it to hone my tactics. What I wanted to share with you is that this seems to be the goal of many of the PUA, PUA Pickup Artist programs, to turn your average person into a narcissist. This is the hardest part about teaching this material, and I often wonder if my students are really more confident after learning this stuff, or either nursing a new crutch, validation through women, or turning into actors on a stage. Thanks very much for the thoughts. Well, I've got one here from Pete, also about our episode on pickup artists. And he writes that one of the flaws in most all of the systems they're trying to sell is that the basic assumption these guys make is that women are all the same. After all, if I started to dress like some 70s pimp reject and putting money and putting women down, I'd probably attract some women in much the same way that flashing a bunch of money will get some women. However, neither of these methods seem to likely attract the kind of women who I would like to spend time with. I decided to ditch the pickup artists and focus on the information I learned from real researchers. The conclusion I came to was that men simply aren't taught how to actually attract a woman, especially in the last several decades where the rules of the game have been significantly in flux for various social and economic reasons. Unfortunately, it has made finding love a far more difficult task, which is why pickup artist guys and dating sites have been able to make a truckload of money. Have I been more successful in finding love? Well, no. Unfortunately, I'm still looking for love in all the wrong places. However, I can assure you that if I do, it won't be, be because of the pickup artists and their bad advice. You go. <laughs> well, they- you go, dude. I hope. I, I, let's find this boy love. <laughs> for real. See, Pete, email email back. Uh, CC Caroline. <laughs> She's got you. Got a matchmaker on your side here. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is the email address. Again, you can find us over at Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, and you can read our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?